most people that become massive achievers can often be frustrated and then spend the rest of their life trying to de-achieve and actually get back to the wilderness and what it's all about. Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in. Our guest on this episode is Rob Gearing of Spartan Precision. I typically don't go back and listen to our shows, um, but I am for sure going to download this and listen to it, partly because it's good timing. We're taking off on the death hike this week, and it is one of those events where fear and comfort and challenge and adventure is a part of that. And so it's good timing for us personally, but honestly, if you guys hunt hunt the backcountry, especially if you're into outdoor pursuits and pushing yourself in any way, you're going to enjoy this conversation for sure. So thank you to Rob for sharing your experience with us. Before we dive into that conversation, a few quick things. Number one, fly rods and bows. You left us a review in iTunes. We want to thank you for that. Send us your shipping information by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We want to send you some Exo Mountain Gear or Hunt Backcountry Podcast swag. And listeners, if you can leave us a review, that helps us tremendously. You can do that in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you're listening to this. You can contact us by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com with any questions, comments, feedback, etc. Um, also, we mentioned this in the Monday Minute, not to make an Exo commercial by any means, but we rarely do sales and we so happen to have some discounted packs currently. So our K2 3500 or 5500 in the Ranger Green color, currently $75 off. You can check those out at exomountaingear.com. All right, enough of that stuff. Let's get right into this conversation with Rob Gearing from Spartan Precision. Rob, welcome to the Hunt Pack Country podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. I, I must say this is the first podcast that we've done across the Atlantic, so we're, we're breaking new ground here. Well, that's quite exciting. I, I've done a few podcasts now in the, well, I've been on your side of the pond, but mm-hmm. this is the first for me too as well. So, oh, excellent. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, excellent. So you're actually getting ready to take off to Patagonia later today. I'm just curious about that trip. If you want to tell us a little bit about it, what are you headed down there for? Yeah, yeah, sure. I've um, I basically left the UK on the 5th of January and have been on your side of the pond ever since. Um, I got back, I think, two weeks ago uh, just to do YWA in Nuremberg. It's the biggest um, internet European sort of shooting show for the trade, really. It's a bit like your version of the shot show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sort of just had an overdose of showtime and uh, 
I'm like about as white as a piece of paper now because I've been living in in hotels and uh, <laughs> show units for the forever more. And uh, I need to get down there and get a bit of vitamin D fast. Yeah. Um, so I'm heading down there with a couple of fly rods, uh, a very basic sort of lifestyle, um, and fishing some great rivers for a bit of therapy. And I'm going to try and switch the dreaded iPhone off and actually go off the radar for a little while. That's awesome. Well, I'm uh, jealous, but glad that you're going to get that time. Yeah, it's it's. If you haven't been to Patagonia, I would thoroughly encourage you or your listeners to go and give it a, a give it a whirl. I I've been really fortunate, um, sort of, in in these years where I've spent so much time in the southern hemisphere, particularly New Zealand. So I know both New Zealand and South America pretty well, uh, but. Uh, I have to say Patagonia probably gets my vote of a place where I, should I have to pick one place? That's really where I'd probably end up. It's, um, it's got the best of many things all mixed in, really. It's got fantastic mountains, uh, some pretty awesome fly fishing, some fantastic hunting, great people, and not too many of them, and uh, some very good beef and red wine thrown into boot. So it, it's a good mix. That sounds hard to beat, for sure. It certainly is. To begin with, I do want to kind of get into some of your history and your origins, and I'm sure that'll lead us to talking about some of the adventures you've had in the summer hemisphere, southern hemisphere. Uh, but just to start with, for listeners who might not be familiar with you, can you go ahead and give us that uh, kind of two-minute elevator pitch uh, on who is Rob Gearing? Yeah, a little bio on me then. Um, basically, I'm a passionate outdoorsman, always have been. Um, really three main points to be outdoors, um, in no particular order. I grew up climbing. That was my big, big passion, rock climbing, and then led into mountaineering in later years. Um, but I've always loved my fly fishing, always loved my hunting. Um, rarely with a shotgun, um, pretty useless with one of those, but done a lot of deer hunting in the UK and around the world now. Um, so those are the three big drivers for me. Um, I, I've always been a little bit frustrated about equipment. I think I'm a frustrated inventor, um, clothing, kit, um, ice axes, fly rods, you, you name it. You know, I'm always looking at ways that things could be improved upon. Um, and that's really where my background comes from. So in a mountain environment, for example, Weight is an absolute key driver for me. So I was always sort of, I, I, look, I didn't get to the stage where I was cutting my toothbrush in half, but I wasn't far off it. Um, and I wasn't cutting labels out of jackets or anything, but I was just thinking if I could shave half a pound here and there, let's do it. So that's my background, really. I, I, I've had an aviation career. Um, so I've always got an engineering background and looking at things and using modern materials to sort of, fix problems that people have used older materials with. So I've said before, and I'll say it again, with the kind of things we're doing, we haven't reinvented the wheel, but we've probably put a new tire on it. Mm, yeah, good. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to spend some time talking about those intersections of those pursuits and really kind of maybe pull some stories and lessons that you've learned having this crossover of climbing and mountaineering and fishing and hunting and how those might relate. Um, what is it? You mentioned climbing at a young age led into mountaineering. Was it mountaineering that 
led you out of country? Were those your first big trips was for climbing trips? Yeah, it certainly absolutely was, Mark. Um, I started climbing in my late teens, rock climbing. And, you know, I was on a very shoestring budget at the time. So most of my climbing started in the UK, namely up in Scotland, in Wales, doing sea cliffs. And we've got a few sea stacks up here, um, like the old man of Hoy and the old man of Stoa. So I had a lot of experiences climbing those with friends and such like. But at a younger age, rock climbing was absolutely where I wanted to be. I think as you get older, you don't have the uh, strength to the uh, body mass ratio, really. It's just not there anymore. And then you can, it can be quite depressing when you can't climb the rocks you could have climbed 15, 20 years ago. So that really migrated me into mountaineering. And with the mountaineering, and I was still rock climbing, it took me further afield. So most of my sort of mountaineering experiences are very much have been outside of Europe, actually, um, namely sort of Patagonia, uh, Himalaya and Greenland are the big areas. But I, I, I did a lot of rock climbing before that in those areas as well. But, um, yeah, those, those were the trips that really got me out and got the old adventure mind working, for want of a better explanation. Yeah, I mean, thinking of adventure, I mean, mountaineering is certainly that. How do you look at the the balance i would say of adventure and pushing yourself uh and taking that's risks a, while also making wise decisions that's a very good question um and actually as i i stopped climbing mountains now um for the simple reason that spartan is my mountain and i'm still climbing it excellent yeah. <laughs> and it feels like that all the time but the last serious climbs I did were um, a trip in Greenland with a couple of guys. Um, one of them's a very well-known climber, a guy called Simon Yates, who um, is famous for cutting his mate off in South America and leaving him to die. And the guy ended up surviving. Miraculous story. And ended up crawling back into camp three days later with a broken femur. Uh, but uh, I'll let your readers look into that because um, it's a big story in its own right. And the other guy I was climbing with was uh, a uh, captain in BA, uh, British Airways, who crash-landed the 777, successfully crash-landed hmm. the 777 into Heathrow, I might add. And uh, the only accident there was one guy with a broken leg, so he did a pretty good job. But they're strong-minded people, very bright, very intense. And um, a lot of climbers are like that. And the balance between enjoyment and risk, that knife edge, I would call, it's very much a personal thing. And the, the reason I say that is you've asked a question. There was a climb that we did on that um, in Greenland that, you know, I actually said, mm, I enjoy beer and my red wine too much. I'm going to call this one a day. Um, and the other two guys carried on. And within 20 minutes, half an hour, they'd probably elected to do the same thing. So I probably weeded out a bit before then. Um, and climbing is quite a selfish thing, actually. And as the family has sort of grown and such like, and you think, oh, it's, it's, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one to put, a, put an answer to, Mark. But we're all, we all have that level that we're comfortable with. Then we have that level where we think this is getting pretty exciting. And then we have that level that this is turned from pretty exciting into absolute abstract fear. Mm -hmm. And I've had those, I've had those fear moments where, 
I've actually been driven to, you know, almost breaking down on the side of a mountain and thinking, ah, oh, what do I do here? What do I actually do to get myself back? Um, and that, until somebody's gone through that, they can't, they can't even put themselves there. And I'm sure, you know, plenty of military people suffer that or have that feeling on a fairly regular basis if they're frontline guys. And probably climbing is one of the other few things that you'd actually get that total fear and total moment of think I could be out of control here. And I can think of a couple of really good cases where I ended up, and one of them was actually a rock climbing. It wasn't mountaineering. And I'd, um, I was climbing, it was in the UK, ironically enough. And I was climbing this um, uh, rock and um, it was very windy, real rough weather, but dry. So that was one, one good bit of news. And I didn't know the climb and I hadn't managed to get any protection in for about ooh, 60 metres. It was almost a rope length of, um, uh, of with nothing in. And I thought, well, if I fall off now, I'm absolutely stuffed. And I was desperately trying to get some gear in and I just couldn't. And then I came to this shelf um, and I just... I, whew, I thought, what do I do now? I don't know what's beyond that shelf. And I, in the end, I sort of, it felt like I was there for hours. I was probably there for about three or four minutes actually trying to collect my thoughts and thought, I've just got to take a stab at this. And I desperately clambered up the shelf and managed to find some little handholds and get in and get a bit of gear in. And, uh, but, whew, you know, that puts hairs on my, even now thinking about it, I think, oh, that was a lucky, that was a lucky break and stupidity probably because I should have thought, well, I can't get any gear in, I should exit this route and it's probably beyond me anyway. But I'm sure there's lots of climbers that could tell stories like that, Mark. Um, yeah. But it does make you appreciate life, I tell you that. And I think now I enjoy the fly fishing and the hunting probably far more because I don't know if I've really got a head put myself into that situation anymore um as i say i get enough stress and an excitement out of in in bucket loads from spartan (laughs) so i really don't need to push myself and actually i want to see the spartan journey through to the end and with climbing there's been quite a few cases where i thought oh this is just pushing it beyond the comfort zone now yeah no that's really fascinating i actually uh I was just reading an article this week that talked about how most men, uh, and this was on a men's site, so it was speaking specifically of men, but it was how most men in the modern age, um, far too many of them are essentially done with adventure by their 30s. And they didn't mean adventure in terms of rock climbing or hunting, but just that whole um, pursuit of something new and difficult and challenging. So yeah. just you know, equating it like here in the U.S. of, you know, a guy graduates high school, a lot of times he might, you know, go into higher ed or the military or what have you. He does some time there. He finishes one of those pursuits. Uh, maybe he finds a woman, gets married. Like, that's a whole new adventure and challenge, having a kid, et cetera, et cetera. But then far too many guys settle into their 30s, and now they're just going by routine. So they have their education or their experience. Um, you know, they might have a family now they're just in a job and they're just going through routine and they don't have something to to push themselves. They don't have a new adventure to stretch themselves beyond their comfort zone. And that's one of the most viable things to me about not only hunting, that happens to be one of my main contexts, but just outdoor pursuits in general 
is that it's this opportunity to step away from the day-to-day and really push yourself beyond your comfort zone. And that doesn't mean you have to do something inherently dangerous, but I think there's this beautiful space of adventure and challenge between your comfort zone and between something, let's say, you know, that's going to cause all-out fear. There's this beautiful space in there um, with adventure that is, I think, essential for us. I, I think that's very well put, Mark. And I wholly agree with it. And I think it's just finding that level of, you know, maybe for me, I need a little bit more excitement than the average person, but not as much excitement as somebody like Simon Yates, for example. Mm -hmm. But as long as you've got that beautiful area or that that slightly out of comfort zone and that excitement zone, it's really where you feel alive. And I think a lot of young people today, and we can talk about the older people later because I'm certainly one of them, but a lot of the young people today really miss that because they spend too much time in front of the computer and they don't get the opportunities to come out and test themselves. But if you get people out or the young people out to test themselves and put them in those slightly uncomfortable environments, I tell you what, that's where the memories are created. Mm-hmm. Those are the memories that they will store in their data bank until the day they die. It won't be playing a computer game. It won't be a phone call. It won't be watching the telly. It'll be living that adventure themselves. And I try desperately hard to introduce as many people as I can to those kind of environments. And I think I've done a pretty good job with that with my kids. You know, I've got four children and they're all very outdoorsy. Most of them hunt. Um, Jenna likes to, she likes to ride horses and she spent a lot of time in Patagonia as well. So, so those people are always, you know, I like to push people just beyond their comfort zone and not scare them but get them into environments that make them feel oh if something went wrong here what would i do and the memories that are created in that particular zone that particular environment are the ones that i think people really value and cherish and for me you know i'm 55 now i absolutely love the outdoors and with spartan i'm desperately trying to find or promote the people within the operation to outgrow me um and they are doing that very very well and the sooner i can get out back in the field and do those things that i'm passionate about the better i'm i'm too old to be building an empire you know i have a diminishing horizon at 55 and i want to be out there while my knees and hips still work um and enjoying time with my partner as well i mean my partner's 10 years younger than me magalie she's very into her fitness and such like keeps me on a very strict diet i'm almost i wouldn't say a meat eater a meat avoider when i'm at home but i eat little meat and it's always game it's good quality meat um so she's she's uh she keeps the pounds off me and <laughs> uh, and that helps very very well yeah do you have any insight or maybe advice for helping people for helping bring people to that point that you mentioned about getting them outside their comfort zone. And so I would equate that to somebody listening to this show who maybe they do take some one of these adventurous trips, but they have a buddy who doesn't and they kind of want to pull this buddy along or, you know, they're, they're raising kids and they want to help their kids kind of get off the computer and get outside. And so do you have any thoughts on helping um, bring some along, someone along and kind of stretch them outside that comfort zone? Yeah, I, I'd say this. I'd say certainly in America as well, you're limited on your holiday there. You have less escape time than we do in Europe generally. 
but I would the first thing I would do is cancel the normal routine holiday, right? Mm. Be it whether you live on your own or whether you're in a family or whether you've got kids, cancel the normal routine holiday and go and put yourself on an adventure trip and do something slightly out of the box. Um, my children have never been on a beach holiday and I don't think they've missed anything. They've been in base camps in the Himalayas. They've been in base camps of South America. They've done some truly magical things. And I think that was really formative for them. Um, and it's rewired them as children into young adults that really enjoy adventure. So if we take Jenna, for example, my oldest daughter, she was very bright. She was offered a place at Durham University. It's number three in the country. She said, you know what, Dad, I'm not doing it. I'm bailing and I'm going back to South America. So she went to live with a load of gauchos um, looking after goats on horseback for nearly a year, came back speaking great Spanish and had a real, real adventure. Uh, my son, Max, is just off to do your Appalachian Trail with another 18-year-old mate. And uh, they're going to be pretty well kitted out with gear. Um, so that's pretty exciting. But um, I, think, I think that's absolutely excellent. So, yeah. Cancel the normal routine holiday. Look up something that's slightly, you know, you say, well, it could be a canoeing trip. It could be a mountaineering course. It could be a rock climbing course. Just, just do something different to get you outside and living in the woods again. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the worth of the podcast right there. Just that simple tip of getting outside that routine and not doing what's default. That's, that's awesome. Well, and, and find somebody, if you're really uncomfortable about it, find, there's so many, it's so easy now. And it wasn't when I was a kid because there wasn't many people to guide you. But there are professionals now. You, you only need to pick up a phone now and say, I want to go and learn to climb, right? Yeah. I want to do this. And there's, there's, a, there's um, a wealth of experience and knowledge of professional guides out there to enable people to go and do those adventures and we didn't have that when i was growing up that was really rare if i wanted to go and learn to rock climb there really wasn't anybody to go and teach me you you'd find a friend and you you get you you wingle your way through it but you'd nearly kill yourself in the process because you didn't know what you were doing um so it's professional guides are fantastic i say that with a um a slight warning I mean, most professional guides are fantastic, be it climbing, fishing guides, hunting guides, as long as they understand that they're there to entertain. And I, I do a few college lectures or college talks with young students here that are in the hunting business because in the UK, we manage a lot of deer, we manage birds and we do all sorts of things. So it is actually a professional career as a professional deer stalker or professional bird controller or gamekeeper for want of better words. And I say to those people, I say, at the end of the day, you're taking people out of their comfort zone and you're putting them in a wild environment um, and you're exposing them to something new often. Really, it's entertainment, guys. It's, it's making them feel alive again because they spend their life, 99% of it, doing something else, which invariably is probably in front of a computer. So remember, it's not about the catching the foot fish. It's not necessarily about climbing an ice wall. It's not necessarily about shooting a deer. It's about the experience. It's about the experience and the journey that culminates in one of those things. But um, I mean, some of the some of the best hunts I've been on 
I had ended up shooting nothing or I'd been with somebody in time and we, but it's, it's just getting outside is hugely important. And so many people don't bother. And you guys, you guys in the States are so lucky to have all of that public land. Um, I harp on about this all the time, but it's, we don't have public land for hunting over in the UK. And um, sadly, it really limits one's capability to take people out or enable them to experience those fantastic adventures that you have on your doorstep. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it is true. So true. Um, we've touched on everything we've touched on so far leads to this. And I, I, I want to ask about mindset and I know that mindset's been important in everything we've talked about, but just to get real specific on mindset, I'm curious how that developed for you over um, the adventures that you've taken, the challenges that you faced, the difficult conditions that you've endured and how to this day at your age at 55, what role a mindset plays in allowing you to continue to pursue these things? It's absolutely huge, Mark. And it's a good question. It's huge. Um, and everything you do is a calculated risk. Um, I gave up a very good, successful, well-paid business to jump into a small boat and build Spartan, and I couldn't have done it without a fantastic, small, committed, devoted team around me. But people said I was mad. You know, people said, well, you're giving up a $300,000 job um, because... But for why, Rob? And I said, because I'm passionate about introducing something, something new um, that, I think, that I think people will love, appreciate and understand. And it's not out there yet. So my mindset, be it whether it's climbing, whether it's fishing, whether it's business, has always been, oh, I don't know when I'm bipolar or anything like that, but I'm very, very driven and I can't think or worry about other things when I'm trying to fix something. And um, with a climb, um, you have to make some pretty brutal decisions now and again, and meaning you have to make some big sacrifices. And I think in business, it's exactly the same. And I think as a climber, it's made me, I'm not a brilliant businessman, Mark, I'm not pretending I am, but it's made me keep the business alive because I've thought something else that somebody else would say, oh, God, that's a big problem. I've gone, no, it's not. We can fix that. I think that kind of background makes you very good in business because it makes you concentrate on the key areas of what really is important. Equally, it can make you a bit brutal. Um, And I probably sometimes am not considered by certain people as being very sympathetic. And it's not the fact I'm not sympathetic. I'm just don't see their problems as being very big problems. Mm. Um, and I think the older I've got, the more probably rough around the edges I've become. And so, well, you, you know, you're worrying about nothing. You, you really are worrying about nothing. And uh, I had, I, I went through, um, uh, you know, a bit of an ugly divorce. A lot of people have done that. And then I went through a bit of an ugly divorce with my business partner in quick succession and that was really heavyweight times for me. And I, my friend that crashed the plane um, came out. He flew over once to see me. And I, I really thank him and respect him for it. And he just said, Rob, he said, when I crashed that plane, he said, I was in a bit of a bad way for a good few months. 
And um, the airline got him a psychiatrist or somebody to help him get him back on track. And he said, that guy said, stop worrying about the things you can't fix. And actually, John told me that. And I thought, yeah, what the hell am I worrying about these things? Because I can't fix them anyway. And that was the switch I needed to enable me to crack on, really. Um, but climbing mountains, I could probably do with climbing one now, just to sort of rebalance myself. It's, it's probably, yeah, it, it levels you down. It also, it also enables you, when you do get home, to really appreciate how easy things are. If you put, you know, you can make a cup of tea, you can make a cup of coffee, you can eat, you can do all these things so easily, which at minus 20, sort of 6,000 metres up the side of a mountain are huge efforts just to sort of stay alive. So I hope that's making sense, but I'm trying to sort of explain to you why running Spartan, why I believe we've succeeded as we have, because we worry about what's really important at the end of the day. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. I actually uh, had a speaking event a couple of weeks ago and it was a it was a wide open thing. I could talk about anything, and I got to reflecting about some of the some of the lessons that I've learned over hunting in terms of backcountry trips and multiple day trips, and not what I've learned about hunting in those, but what I've learned about life. And one of the things that stuck out to me is is reflecting on it. And I knew this at the time, but it became even more aware as I looked back. Is just learning to be truly present in something, which I think is incredibly, yeah. incredibly difficult these days when you have essentially constant uh, exposure to distraction, to input, to noise. I mean, it's, you know, we're on the computer. If we're not on the computer, we're on the phone. If we're on the phone, we're talking to somebody. And we just don't, most of us in day-to-day life, truly focus, meaning no distractions um, in an area where the surroundings dictate our focus in a pursuit that demands our focus and in all of that to be truly, truly present. And uh, I think that, again, that's just so valuable these days is you put yourself into a situation, whether that's a climbing trip, an extended backcountry hunt or something like that, to be truly present in the moment with a single goal and have focus for that. So it, it definitely fits in with everything you just said there. It's an excellent subject matter you just touched on there, Mark. And I had that conversation with some young, uh, young ones the other day. And I said, you know what? You've missed out. You've missed out because you have technology pretty much always at your hand now. And some of the best times um, that I've had is when I haven't had that technology available to me. So even on a serious climb now, you'll take um, a satellite phone. Right. So you could be anywhere on the planet and you can reach somebody. And actually, the last big climb I did, I refused to take the satellite phone. I said, no, no, that's not what it's about, guys. I I mean, I'm not, I don't have any disrespect for anybody that's climbed Everest. I think it's a fantastic achievement, but it's not what I'm about. I go to the mountains to be basically with a very small small team of people that I know very, very well. um, And I'll know their weaknesses and I'll know their strengths. And more importantly, they'll know mine. And I think the minute you have technology at your hand that you can still communicate, it takes a big chunk of that moment away from you. Um, You can imagine us having this conversation around a fire a thousand years ago and we wouldn't have been abused by anything other than maybe being attacked by somebody, but there's there's (laughs) nothing to get to you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to enjoy that moment. You're going to appreciate the food. You're going to appreciate what you're drinking. Everything's got a real tangible to it. 
And we've lost so much of that now. And most of the happiest people I've ever met have got nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, we could learn from that. So another thing I say to people, I've said to my kids, you've only got one set of legs, kids. You've only got one set of legs and you can only be at one place at one time. So don't get embroiled or try and follow this huge success drive that you've got to achieve this and you've got to achieve that and you've got to achieve this. Most people that become massive achievers can often be frustrated and then spend the rest of their life trying to de-achieve and actually get back to the wilderness and what it's all about. We could have a whole podcast on that one, Mark. I've got some very strong views on it. But I'm I'm actually really pleased with my viewpoint on life. Um, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I still have my insecurities like everybody does. Mm-hmm. But I have surrounded myself with some wonderful people who know what those are and they support me and I support them. But I really do, you know, I'm just about to jump on a flame to Patagonia. I'm as guilty as the next person. I think, no, oh, I'd really like not to take the phone. I'd really like to leave it here. But you know what? I will take the phone and there will be times I think I'll just check the internet, do this and blah, blah, blah. And I wish I had the courage to actually leave the phone here and say, I'm gone for 10 days and you won't be seen. And yeah. that would be a great thing to do. And I have done it in the past. Now, sadly, with Spartan and such like, I can't leave that baby quite alone just yet because it's just still not quite ready for that, for that jump. But I, I, I will get back there. Yeah. We could have this conversation in a few years. And I'm, I'll hope I'll say, Mark, I'm off to Patagonia and I'm leaving the phone behind. Right. Yeah, I mean, it'd be amazing if you could do it for 10 days, but... To be honest with you, if you can make it 10 hours without your phone in the current day, that's still a heck of an achievement and a really good way to decompress. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the only way to decompress properly. Um, And sadly, a lot of people never decompress. They never get that opportunity or are too fearful of the uncertainties. And it's like people with kids around here now, you know, they don't let them walk to school or they don't let them do anything. And they just all become completely cotton-walled. And I've met kids in Patagonia. I met a little five-year-old kid. His school walk was a four-hour walk to school and a four-hour walk back along a river street, you know, a, a river system. During icy conditions, you think, well, will I see my kid again? You know, and I'm sure kids do get lost and such like. But, God, he was really living, eh? You know, yeah. that's, that's a proper life. No, for sure. Um, another thing that came to my mind, and this is maybe just a, you know, I feel like for listeners, and I'm soaking this in myself, but I feel like for listeners, we're giving them uh, a lot of maybe both encouragement as well as a challenge to get out and to do more and all that. And another area that comes to mind for me is this whole idea of learning secondhand versus firsthand, meaning you can learn about hunting um, via a podcast like this, which is incredibly helpful, or via reading an article or watching a video, and all of those resources are great. But at the same time, nothing replaces the firsthand experience and learning in the field and creating, I would say, your own knowledge. How has that played a role for you coming from a different generation? And you alluded to this earlier, there was no one to teach you how to climb back then, essentially. And you if there was someone, it was in person. It wasn't YouTube type thing. Um, so well, how, how think, valuable has it been for you to make your own mistakes and, and maybe learn your own way in the field? I think if you learn through your own mistakes, you become a better climber and a better hunter. 
and probably a better fisherman. It's probably less important for the fisherman side, but certainly for climbing and hunting, if, well, for climbing, if you learn from your mistakes and you survive those mistakes, you tend not to make those mistakes again um, because you often don't get a second chance. Um, for hunting, as a hunter, um, nobody taught me to hunt. And I would say I was an atrocious hunter for many years. You know, I'd go out and think, why aren't I seeing the deer? Why am I, why am I not catching these things? And it was, now I look back and I can see, and it was it's blindingly obvious to me now, but it took me some years to fine tune that. We're, we're fortunate in one regard in the UK that we are able, there aren't many hunters over here, but the ones that do hunt do a lot of hunting uh, because it's a management issue here. We've got limited number of hunters managing a high population of deer. So we're given more opportunities probably um, to make mistakes than you guys over there because you get your tag system, which is a great system, by the way. But if you really want to build up an experience of managing deer populations and such like, um, certainly the UK would be a great place to do that because there's, for example, there's eight deer hunters looking after 7,000 acres near me and between us we'll manage between 300 and 350 deer a year. So you shoot a lot of animals. Um, so you very quickly learn what works and what doesn't. Um, and in America, you probably, you're able to watch a lot of podcasts and watch a lot of films and you can go out and experience it and watch it, but your, your hunting season's very short. So getting back to your answer, I think nothing beats actually going out and living it. And nothing's more rewarding either. Um, I could watch a video on learning to climb. I could watch a video on learning to hunt. I'd enjoy doing those if I get the time to watch the videos. Rarely do I do. Rarely do I get the time these days. But I'd far, you know what? I'd rather rather go out and experience it myself and learn. Um, and I think think people should really have the courage to do that. Yeah, I think if you've invested your own time and made your own mistakes and learned from those, when things finally come together and you find some level of, ex of success, it's just that much more rewarding. Oh, hugely so. Hugely so. I mean, I, I spend quite a lot of time up in the Arctic these days and I'm, I'm really aware of how little I know about that environment. Um, and it's great work going with people that do know that environment and it's great experiencing new things and, and actually screwing up a few things and thinking, well, I won't do it that way again. Um, and you, the way my mind works is if I read something or watch something or watch somebody else doing it, invariably I forget. If I actually make those mistakes myself, I tend to remember them a lot better. Excellent point. Um, how did your history with climbing, which is, you know, you're exposed to so much in climbing and you realize the importance of gear um, in terms of both keeping you safe and alive as well as relatively comfort in harsh conditions. How did your experience with climbing and the importance of gear there lead you into hunting and your perspective on gear for hunting and then ultimately looking at problems and wanting to develop solutions kind of for that market? Excellent question. And simply put, with, with climbing, everything's weight-driven. Um, and I felt that, um, so that was my key, that was my first most important point. I thought 
why am I carrying metal things around now when there's other materials that would do the job at a fraction of the weight? Um, and obviously climbing has progressed quite quickly because of that, because obviously the packs you use, the axes you use, the boots you use, the clothing, it's all as light and as functional as it possibly can be. Now, all of those things you pay a price for. You know, if you're going to sacrifice weight, it might not do something as well as if it was heavy. And invariably, that's often the case. But from my climbing background, I felt that the hunting um, world needed to be, it needed up in its gear, really. It, 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 the stuff worked and it was functional, but people really weren't probably going out for very long. Weight wasn't such a driver. And I thought, I can do better than that. I can, I can apply climbing technology to the hunting world. And that's exactly what we've done in the form of Spartan, really. We've, we just said, well, why should a bipod stay on the rifle? It's, it's quite a big, heavy, chunky thing. And I'm only going to use that bipod very rarely. So I'd rather keep that on my body and put it on the rifle as and when I need it. Um, a nice axing permanently welded to my hand, you know, I'm going to use it for other things. And that, that bipod historically has always been part of the rifle. And I thought, no, no, that's, that's getting in the way. It makes noises and it's, it's heavy and chunky. I can do a better job. So it's simple answer is weight was the first driver. Then what other functionality could I bring to things? Because you all know, I mean, even if you're cooking on the side of a mountain, if you're cooking on the side of a mountain in snow, your stove melts through the snow. So you've got to think about, oh, how do I do this? And how do so there's, there's a, you become very sort of adaptable as a climber and you become very used to uncomfortable situations. So I was trying to make, trying to sort of put myself in uncomfortable situations as a hunter and think, how could I improve that? How could I make the, the tools more effective and more functional? Um, and a great analogy would be, I was in New Zealand hunting tar uh, last year. I'm going back again this November, actually. And the guy there said, I, I bought out my bipod and he said, forget it, mate. We use rucksacks here. He said, there isn't a bipod that will work in this environment. A classic Kiwi. Can be quite, they're good guys, but they're used to working in a real tough, messy environment with fairly utilitarian sort of tools and, and they mm -hmm. make they're very do they're very functional hunters, excellent mm -hmm. hunters in actual fact, in my experience. Well he, he shot a couple of tar off the javelin and he said, Oh man, he said, This is this works. This works when the ground's uneven and I can follow the target. And I said, Yeah, exactly. And that's why we produce that. Now could we do things better? We can always do things better. But you've got to start somewhere and you've got to think, this is this is how this is, this is what I want out of that particular product. And then in Spartan, we've looked at other things and tried to develop and make a tent from the tripod and blah, blah, blah. But it's, I love that kind of journey. I love, I love taking a problem and trying to find an answer. Now, people, you know, serious hunters will get that because serious hunters work in a very serious environment. If you're, if you're hunting in Sussex, for example, where I hunt you know, we don't have a mountainous environment so we don't need those tools and a hunt won't be longer than a day anyway but i've still managed to do it because i've come from a mountaineering background so the climbing has definitely formed it has been a great help to enable me to develop products 
So that's hunting sort of environment, I think. You don't have to get super specific here because I don't want to get off on a crazy rabbit trail that might not apply to listeners. But I, I'm also curious, and I think listeners would benefit from understanding a little bit behind the scenes. I'm just curious, what surprised you about actually designing a product and getting that to market? Because it's not easy. <laughs> oh, oh no. Well, you all know that. Um, that nearly killed the business several times over. And um, it's been, for me, not being, I came from an industry where I was more of an engineering background. We didn't actually make design um, and build things and sell them. And with Spark, we're doing the whole gambit from manufacturing, you know, from design, the drawing the initial concept, testing it, building it, failing, building the concept again, testing it, failing, you know, and keep on failing until you get it right. That's been a huge journey for us, Mark, a huge journey and, and kept us poor, frankly. And that if I was a proper businessman, I mean, a lot of people say, well, that's, well, that's good now. You can say, I said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. I, maybe if I was 25 and I had different drivers, I would be going, oh, yeah, yeah, that'll work. Let's get that out to market, bash that out and sell it and make a load of money. And I said, I don't want to be remembered for that. I, I want to be remembered for there's Rob Gearing and his team and they make good gear. And I'm, nothing's more frustrating on a climb than something failing, be it your gas stove or your ice axe or your trekking poles. So I always came from that background. I thought whatever we make, it's got to be as robust as it possibly can. Yes, it doesn't, we don't want it heavy and we want it functional. I mean, those are the drivers. But getting that stuff right through the R&D design and building has been a painful journey. And we've made probably every mistake in the book. I mean, I've fallen into a few huge troughs. Um, and in the Spartan office, you'll see products that I thought, oh, that's going to be fantastic that we've manufactured. You go, oh, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. not going to work. But we've, yeah. got, we've got dozens of them, Mark, dozens of them. And... Um, yeah, we're very self-critical, actually, but I think that's the beauty of being a small business that isn't driven by accountants. It's driven by people that actually use the gear. And I'd like to think that comes through in the product. I mean, certainly the reviews and such like, well, particularly from your side of the pond, we get great feedback and, and we, we listen. You know, we've got, we've got the luxury of having probably 40,000 field testers out there now. So if, if, if some of those guys come out back and say, well, Rob, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? We'd be foolish not to listen. And I'm sure it's the same for you. So it's, that's how small companies become big, good companies, I think, and driven. And one day it will outgrow me, but I probably won't want to be part of it then. It's, at the moment, it's a really exciting boat ride. Yeah. Um, and it's a small boat we're in. Um, yeah. But um it's it's created a big impact in the company's under five years old and crikey it's 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 made some fantastic achievements and that's been very much a team effort mm-hmm. yeah there's such a big difference in a company that you know started to solve a problem and not started to sell a product um I mean, there's such a big difference of going like hey hunting's big right now and i think if we made this product we could sell forty thousand of them Versus going, hey, I think there's a a very specific product that would meet a specific need and solve a specific problem. And I think if we did this right, people would buy it. And there's just totally two different approaches there. And uh, 
you know, that one that's truly trying to meet a need and not just trying to meet a market is so much more interesting. Well, I built that bipod because I was frustrated with what was on the market for my needs. There was nothing wrong with the bipods out there. They served, you know, I can't think of a bad bipod out there. They all do their job very, very well. It's just, it's not what I needed from a bipod. I'm actually a guy that builds bipods that doesn't like bipods. It's yeah. as simple as that. So I wanted, a, I wanted a system that could live in my pocket and I'd put it on real quick and effectively when I need it and take it off and chuck it back in the bag or stick it in my pocket again. It was that simple. Um, and I felt that I didn't build it to a budget. I built it to a quality. I said, I want the best carbon I can get. I want to use aviation grade aluminium. I want to use all the best materials, tungsten. It, it was, and my, I didn't even, this is the climbing head now. I wanted to get to the top of the mountain and I didn't care how I was going to do it. So my view was, I want to make that product absolutely as good as it can be. And my view was, if I achieve that, then people will see the value in it and they'll buy them. And wrongly or rightly, that's what's happened. Now, am I some great business guru? I'm absolutely not. I'm a very simple person that's quite driven about simple things, fighting to get back out into nature again, to be perfectly honest. Um, this industry and what I've done in here has enabled me to meet some fantastic people. And I get such great invites to go and do the, all these wonderful things now. So, I just haven't got enough. The clock is ticking at 55, and I think, God, if I, if I said yes to all these things, I haven't got enough life left while my knees and hips are working anyway. So I want to be getting that back out there and doing those things yeah. as much as I'm able. That's awesome. We, uh, you know, we didn't in, really, we talked about this beforehand, Rob. We didn't want this to be a podcast about the product. I was just personally curious about, like, the background that went into you bringing something to market. And so everything we just discussed there is super helpful. Um, I do have one, yeah, I do have one specific product question just because I'm really curious about it. Um, what you mentioned about that bipod and you want it out of the way when it's not needed, you want it in your pocket, if you will, but you want to be able to quickly deploy it, that attachment system, um, and for listeners who aren't familiar with the product, you can, you can go learn more about the product in general, but can you just talk about that attachment system with the magnet and the versatility that that gives you as well as the the fluidness of it um because that's just something that really stuck out to me and i'm just curious to learn more about that yeah okay well let, let's touch on that always happy to explain but it's so what it is it's, it's a 12 millimeter hole that you um you, there's several lots well there's lots of different types of adapters you can fit to your rifles there's what i call the quick and dirty ones that simply you take your sling swivel stud out and our adapter goes in and replaces it and uh, then your sling swivel is part of that adapter. Now, I'm not necessarily in love with those because it's something you're screwing onto the rifle. Again, it's a small, unobtrusive product, but what I always say to people is put a gunsmith adapter in, which is actually bonded into the stock, and we sell thousands of them now. But basically, once you put that little cup, that receptor on your rifle, the bipod has a magnet in the head of the bipod. So that means that the bipod literally mag is magnetically put into place in a matter of seconds. I can put that bipod on my rifle quicker than you could drop the legs on a conventional bipod anyway. I'm yet to be beaten, and I'm not super quick, but I always say to people, 
when they say, oh, Bifold should always be on the rifle, I say, well, why? You've grown up with a Bifold on the rifle. That's why you're saying that to me. Now try this system. And I've yet to disappoint somebody on that front. But the other thing is also bring the whole system into play. So the Bipod is just part of a modular system for enabling, enabling somebody to take that ethical shot. It ups, our, it ups our standard because basically once you've got a Bipod on the rifle, it doesn't have to be a javelin Bipod. It could be a Harris. It could be an Atlas. It's going to up your game and you're going to shoot more accurately. Now, shooting off carbon is a key change to shooting off metal legs because it's like putting shock absorbers on your car. The car naturally moves when you shoot your rifle. So there's very little point of impact change on shooting off um, the javelin products, but that could be any carbon fiber bipod. And there's many good ones out there now, but we've also introduced with that a tripod trekking pole bipod system. So the Sentinel is basically your two trekking poles. It's your tripod. It also makes the frame for your tent. Um, we make a really basic tent. I mean, it's a single wall tent. You're not going to go and live in the Arctic with it because you probably freeze to death, although I have, just to prove a point. But it's really a get-you-out-of-trouble tent. So the whole system, I akin it to like the 308 of the shooting world. It'll do everything pretty well. It will not be your F-class bipod. It will not be a bipod for the sniper units or your SOCOM guys or your Delta Force. It's a tool to do a job in a difficult environment. And when people get that and understand it, and the serious hunters very much do, I think it's a great product and I'm extremely proud. And I can say that without saying sounding arrogant because a lot of very good minds have put this together. It's certainly not just my idea. We produced a game-changing hunting tool to ethically shoot animals accurately. And I say to people all the time, you probably spend, you know, you could spend $1,000 on your hunt. You could spend $10,000 on your hunt. You could spend $1,000 on your rifle. You could spend $3,000 on your rifle. And the same for the glass you're going to put on the top. How much value do you put when that actually, when you've got that real stressful moment and you'll have been there, I've been there, where you've got an animal in front and think, God, I wish I could have a better support now. Should I take this shot? Should I not? Am I risking screwing this up? Well, stick a javelin bipod on or stick the Sentinel system and it just ups your game. It's quick, effective, and really does the job. So I put a lot of value and a lot of onus on actually being quite proud of the fact that animals are probably shot a lot more accurately off our systems than they would be if you didn't have them. We've only scratched the surface on products. So if guys want to learn more about that, kind of see the system, what's the best place to go for them, Rob? Yeah, if they look at the website, Spartan Precision Equipment, it'll tell you a lot. We're pretty pretty poor at um, doing brochures and catalogs because we're too busy inventing things. But there's some really good videos on there. We've got some excellent partners in the States now. We're doing a bit with Proof Research, with Kimber, with Christian Snarms. Um, uh, Brandy Rock Canyon sell our product over there as well. They're a great um, outlet because they've got a lot of stock. They hold a lot of Spartan equipment. I'm delighted to say that we will set up a Spartan USA this year. Um, we've, got, we've got a new American partner um, investing in the business, and uh, he's very keen to set up Spartan Inc., and we're delighted for that. And we absolutely need to do that because we've got so much military interest now from your SF units on your side of the pond, we've got SF units we're looking after here. 
So that product really needs to be made in the States. And uh, that's, that's a very exciting journey for our little company. So I'm, I'm really keen to see how that develops. Well, Rob, I, uh, I so appreciate the time and learning um, from your experiences and what you've shared with us, and especially taking the time before you head off to Patagonia. So thank you so much. Well, absolute pleasure, Mark. I'm delighted to have a chat with you. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you got a lot out of this one. I hope you're inspired and challenged and can't wait to go push yourself in some capacity, uh, be it outdoors, however you want to do that. Like, it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day and in comfort. Let's break out of that. Let's go do something. So get out there. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.